Welcome to Digital Packaging Disruption from CMYK. Here's your host, Dustin Stearman. Welcome back to the Digital Packaging Disruption. Today, I am joined by Andrew Boyd, president of Blue Label and TLMI board member. Thanks for jumping on with us today, Andrew. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, sorry for the lack of decor in here. I guess you have even less than I do, but... Yeah, I do. It's it's just a white wall. It really should be like a whiteboard back here. I used to have one of those in my old office, actually. It was a full board white wall. Uh, well, that's the thing. It's like, I can't point to any exhibits today. So you just have to imagine. <laughs> Fortunately for the on. listeners, they don't get to really see much of the video. I do, I do like do a little bit of cropping in the video and we'll share that once in a while, but most listeners might not get to see the beautiful painting in the background there that I get to see right now. <laughs> Great. Uh, it's good to finally do this, man. Obviously, you and I had a chance to connect back in March in person, I think for the first time, or really just kind of meet up at D-Scoop and life's been a little bit busy. Work's been busy. Been wanting to get you onto the DVD podcast. So appreciate you making some time to just, you know, sit down and chat. No, I'm a big fan for what is that like longtime listener, first time guest. You know, I don't know how that what that equates to when this is in the radio world. But yeah, I mean, I, I obviously it's cool to see all your content online and then meet you in person and now several times. And now we get to have a conversation that other people can listen into. So that's great. It's always, you know, I, I get to have fun doing these because like the collective energy and being able to, to connect with others like yourself, who visionaries, disruptors, it fires me up. So looking forward to just learning more about your story and getting to chat today is, I mean, I know a little bit about it, but I don't know a lot. And my intention for inviting you on is to share more about your journey, Blue Label. And for those that, you know, tune in, just to get to hear a little bit more about how you guys got to where you are and your outlook on the market and where you see the industry going. But you know, before we just jump in, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and noticed that you went to the Ohio State. My wife's a Penn State alum, so we're not real big fans of the Buckeyes over here. You guys have been just cleaning up for way too many seasons. I'm looking forward to the game. PSU hasn't had much of a challenge yet. Yeah. Got to turn up this weekend. But um, so tell us a little bit about, you know, OSU, what, what were you doing over there? What were you studying and how did you end up, you know, getting into the printing space? And I'm sure you found oh, yeah. time to go to football games too along the way. Yeah, 100%. I, I think a fun thing to do a lot of times if you're, if you have like a table of people that is in the printing industry is asking everybody at the table how they got into the industry. Because you really find a lot of very circuitous tales of how people ended up doing this, right? And for me, it's probably a little bit more straightforward, you know, I think than than some people, which is my grandfathers were printers and they joined forces in the 1950s and combined their business together. Their kids ended up getting married, kind of weird, you know, turn of events. So I really grew up with multiple generations of my family working in printing. And that was the the business that I was exposed to as a little kid. And I, you know, the first I don't know, maybe in middle school and they ask you like, you know, your first career kind of counselor comes in of what do you, do you have a thought on what you might want to be? And I think I put president of a printing company. So it's been a pretty straight line in terms of what my interests have been. Uh, I've always been around the equipment, you know, the product and thought it was great. That said, you know, when you get a little bit older and you get into college, you realize all that's out there. And I think that I probably at that point, I had dreams of getting into who knows? I think at that point I was really interested in heavy construction equipment like Belden and Caterpillar. That was really my interest. But again, reality had other designs for me, which uh, when I was graduating, it was the recession. So all my job prospects dried up and my 
went back for my MBA immediately after school just because there was nothing from a job standpoint I could do. And I ended up coming to help part-time on the family business. They were kind of struggling from a revenue standpoint. We specialize in envelope production. So it was a tough time. Obviously, the 2010, 2011 was not a great place to be in envelopes. So what basically happened is I, I came in on a part-time basis, helping out with the project here, project there. And like many people, it ended up being my full-time job. And now it's been 12 years or so that I've been at this. So yeah, you know, it's interesting how, you know, life just kind of tends to play out in ways that maybe are hard for us to imagine at the time, but you look back and it's kind of cool how things unfold to the extent of, you know, thinking you want to get into heavy construction equipment, ending up back in the family business and, you know, kind of tying you back to, like you said, the the role of becoming a president of a printing company when you're back in middle school and thinking about what you want to do when you grow up. And today, oh, yeah. today Absolutely. you are, right? Especially, and you know, it's like, I think people, it's like, oh, that's great. That's worked out. And it's like, well, you know, when we started this, we were a pretty small envelope company that was losing money. So it was like, it has not been like necessarily a fun journey, the right. entire progression to get to here. But you learn a lot about printing and you learn a lot about how, what can happen to markets in this industry, how technology can change, you know, what it takes to to find good people. And so I have a lot of respect for the offset space that we started in. That's because I think now the converting and packaging space is seeing a lot of the same issues come up. And for me, at least, even in my relatively short career, I've gotten to see some of those problems and how they might play out. So yeah, there's there's even value in that. But definitely, we'll talk probably about how the company's evolved in a little bit. But definitely started out doing a very different thing in the printing industry. Stoked about where we are now. And in terms of Ohio State, I mean, absolutely love it. I still live... I don't know, maybe eight blocks from campus so I can walk up for games. And yeah, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't trade it for the world. So big Ohio State guy. How often do you get out to the games throughout the season? You get to a couple or more than that? Dustin, how often I get to the parking lot around the game and how often I get to the actual game are two different questions, but probably a couple. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, we're, we're as you know, we're here in Boulder, college town. You know, love the vibes of being in a college town. My wife says that it often reminds her of being in Penn State too, which is just, it's cool being in that kind of place. Nothing better than a fall Saturday morning. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially when it's actually fall and cool and we get rid of the heat, which has finally happened in the last few weeks and good times. Yeah, I want to go back to what you were just speaking to though. So, you know, it's interesting. You hear a lot about from those who are seasoned business professionals, how during like pullback periods and tough economic times, often, oftentimes you see great business ideas born. And you speak to you getting into the family business right around like 08, 09, 10, 11, obviously a lot of pressure on that part of the industry, as you were saying. At the time, Blue Label doesn't exist. Uh, you're coming in to help really help drive some growth and you know revitalize the business. And somewhere along the way, this small idea for getting into an entirely new market segment stepping away from like the commercial print aspect and going into applying and taking that expertise of skill set of applying ink to substrate, but moving into the packaging category. Love to just dive in headfirst and hear, you know, take us back in time, 2010, 2011, you're in the family biz and you're looking at how do we innovate? How do we grow? How do we future-proof? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, definitely to give credit where credit is due, my father, the previous generation of ownership, and my friend Joe, who's still here today as our director of operations, had 
evaluated in 2003, they had chosen to go forward with an Indigo printing press and a Digicon Omega finishing line. And the idea was we had lot, we produced church offering envelopes specifically. So the idea was we had lots and lots of church customers, maybe 10,000 different churches bought envelopes from us. The idea was what if we sold them custom water bottle labels? Because in the early 2000s, custom water bottles were one of the first applications of digital labels that were really easy to easy to understand, easy to sell. And it was a great fit because the runs were just so small and you could combine them all. They're all the same size. So in 2003, we purchased that equipment and we were producing some digital labels, but we were doing it exclusively for trade. And we really didn't have our own standalone brand yet. So we had a fledgling you know, division that could do some digital labels and it was an Indigo 4000. So a lot slower than we're used to now. A lot of limitations in substrate, you know, color wasn't what it is, but for a lot of applications, you know, it really blew the competition away in terms of what it could do from a price standpoint and quality standpoint. So when I started here in 2011, we already had that little operating business unit that could do digital labels. And that's a huge advantage, obviously, if you already have the winning technology in-house to starting, you know, the next business you're trying to create. So there's an awesome foundation to build a digital packaging business. What happened next was, you know, looking at what are ways we can push our existing product lines, which are envelopes. What are ways we can do more of that? That's one thing we're evaluating as a management team. The other is, what ways can we expand this digital packaging thing? And I think for me, the light bulb really turned on. I attended a D-Scoop. At that point, it was in Washington, D.C. And it was at the release of, I believe those are the Series 3 presses. So I think when the 20,000 was just at 2012, you know, so it was 14, like... Between 12 and 14. Yes. So they're kind of talking about the future of digital printing. And as a very new person to the industry, fresh out of business school, you know, I'm like very interested in what I'm seeing. So, you know, from there, I could kind of start to draw the lines between how we might get from a single 4,000 to a 6,000 to eventually, you know, maybe even a 20,000. And it was all fuzzy, but I think HP has always done a great job of showing the possibilities in their technology. As we've built our business, there's a lot of caveats that go along with that, that I've learned along the way. But in terms of creating a vision for what the business could be, absolutely tremendous. So yeah, I mean, basically... Go to a D-Scoop, see the potential of this technology, get really excited about it, upgrade our 4,000 to a 6,000. And we go out and try to start selling customers directly, kind of cutting out at that point, not relying on Flexo printers to bring us the work, but maybe seeing if some customers just want to buy digital labels directly. So that's how we got our start. So a couple of thoughts come to mind there. I got into labels, digital labels in 13. So series three, I think, you know, was already pretty much what I was seeing at the converters shops when I was going into their environments. The 4000 series, was that a roll fed or was that sheet fed? It was also roll fed. It was roll fed. Okay. Yeah. So that, I think if the 6000 series goes 60 feet a minute, it was closer to maybe 40 feet a minute. Okay. And it was an even narrower web. I want to say like 10 inch or 12 inch, but I probably. Okay. So, you know, in terms of just kind of going back to that 2012, 13 period where you're looking at this new business model coming up with new ideas, what was the idea at the time in terms of, you know, sure, there's label printing and that that's a pretty wide yeah. scope, but tell us how are you looking to create a differentiated model or, you know, at the time, what was the opportunity that you saw outside of just kind of, hey, we can scale more labels? 
there had to be more substance there that in terms of your vision. And then you go to D scoop and it's like, okay, you got the confidence. I think really at that point to say, we need to double down on this sector. Absolutely. And I think, you know, like anybody who's trying to, to trying to grow a business, you're trying to meet a need for something that doesn't exist in the marketplace. Right. Mm -hmm. And at that point it was really, and it's, it still is this day, but I think we've come a long ways in industry. It was really customer service turn times, most importantly, because, you know, a lot of printing processes, especially on the customer facing end are very bureaucratic. There's a long lead time to even get the order approved and in. And then once you have it approved, okay, you'll have that in five weeks. And again, as a you know younger person new to the industry, I'm thinking that's pretty weird. Like most things you buy, I'm used to Amazon. You know, as a student, I've been a student for years. I put the order in online, and then it shows up at my door a few days later. And so to see that the production process and turnaround was so different from what I was expecting as a you know new member of the business community, I thought that was a pretty big opportunity. Of what if we just offered better turn times and better customer service? At that point, we only had one press. So we didn't really have a lot of firepower behind that. But the idea was we'll always pick up the phone, you know, and we'll basically, as we're growing this business, we'll scale up as we need to if we get more work. The other big thing, so that's kind of what, you know, appealing to the Amazon effect is it's now pretty commonly called, but instant gratification, people want to put an order in, get it pretty soon. So the other side is kind of the Whole Foods effect, is what it maybe used to be called or what I called it anyway. But it was the interest in local products or at least regional specific or products that meant something to people and also distribution channels that were looking for products like that. So like Whole Foods, you know, they were looking for, um, I don't know if it's still like this now. I know there's lots of places that have gone on to do this, but they were actually making space in their store shelves for local brands and who needed professional looking packaging. So you had a developing market of these small businesses, these small consumer brands that really needed to look professional. And at the same time, you know, they were also used to buying most of their stuff online. So they were looking for a fast, easy to use kind of customer interface or at least customer service. And so the, the combination of those two things was really our original value proposition is we were duct taping a lot of things together behind the scenes, but make it seem like you're ordering something from Amazon and give them packaging that looks the same as their much larger competitors. That was our goal. I love it in terms of like uh, duct taping a lot of things behind the scenes, right? Uh, at the end of the day, especially the consumer coming online, you know, that web presence is a, is a huge factor in what they feel when they arrive to that company through the web in terms of how you get it done. Um, they're not as much concerned about that, R truly. Like, is my yeah. product here? Is it on time? I, I don't really care too much more beyond that, which worked to your advantage in that case. But, you know, when I think of Blue Label, and I've known of your company since, that, again, since I got back into the label sector in 13 when I was playing around with the self-adhesive raw material supply chain. I think I came across Blue at that point, maybe between 13 and 14. But when I think of when I think of Blue, I think of definitely one of the innovators that really created significant change in the label industry when it comes to speed to market. And there weren't many businesses that were doing what you and your team did, if from my recollection at least, or from my little bit of knowledge. So you're out there really kind of introducing a newer concept to the market around, hey, you know, you don't need to just buy stickers with this kind of turn time, but you can buy actual label production with this kind of turn time too. That tends to bring a fair a fair amount of demand at some point. You know, it's it's like pushing that flywheel, introducing this new concept, but it becomes very sticky very fast, right? Yes. Yeah. And the very fortunate thing is we happen to meet an industry, the beer industry, that really valued that specific proposition. 
Yeah. So I think that industry has changed a lot. It's it's also grown up a lot, as have we in our service offerings. But at, in that beginning phase, you had a lot of startup beer brands who were also, you know, really just taking off. And and for them, a far out production schedule, realizing what was next, planning their their inventory, you know, months in advance. That wasn't their reality. You know, they were also brewing things that they thought were interesting. Yields were different than what they planned. Maybe something didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. It's now become a special edition. So our value proposition and their needs aligned really well. And I think when, you know, the early success of Bully Bull was really tied to the success of the beer industry. And especially when you were seeing the crazy openings of new breweries everywhere in the US, as times have changed, obviously there's a lot more consolidation in that space. Those companies have grown up a lot. I mean, the breweries that you see now as regional powerhouses are very well-oiled business machines. So it becomes less of a big deal for them to get labels in a couple of days. You know, they like everybody else, they need to drive price. They have to be competitive on the store shelf. And so that that industry has transformed a lot. But absolutely, as we were growing, like you said, that that turn time was our bread and butter. I mean, we really lived and died by that three to five day turn time. And a lot. We mentioned duct tape earlier. A lot of duct tape was used to get there. I think, you know. Not- it, reminds me, it reminds me a lot about my journey. And I was about four years after you at that point. But instead of craft brew, you know, I was heavily involved in cannabis. And, you know, when you find that value proposition and that end market that needs it, the growth potential is just, it's massive. It's unlike anything oh, yeah. you could ever imagine. But you know, with that comes this challenge of managing capacity against demand. Like, was there a point in time as, as and maybe you're still seeing it, but as you grow the business or as you were growing the business, did you find yourself constantly like toggling between, okay, we need to put in more capacity to support this demand, or we need to drive in more demand because we just put on a, a ton of new capacity? Like that's an interesting balancing act when you're playing the digital packaging game, right. You know, there's this opportunity for people like you, me and others that are doing it out in the market to go drive some pretty significant growth. Oh yeah. And that's, that's not something you can go to school and learn how to manage. No, I mean, and even the, even the, you know, even what the textbooks would tell you, all that's really driven around things that are, you know, you're a big market share competitor. You know, that's, those are for the GMs of the world, for the Procter and Gamble's, you know, to really, who are, who have locked in distribution channels and everything else. So it, when you're a small business growing, you're not getting those growing 7%, you know, per annum. Like that's not what's happening for you. Sometimes maybe it is, but it's also if you have a value proposition that's resonating with customers, if you have a product people like and you're a small business, it's easy to see growth, you know, in excess of 100%. I mean, because you, just the overall base of revenue isn't that big and you, you know, you're supporting everything with one press. So it's like, okay, like 100% growth, that's a lot, but it's manageable. We'll, we'll get another press hire, a couple, a few more people. When you start to get past that into the mid range, now you're talking about some real logistical headaches. As a few, you're still small enough that really a few or you know a few dozen customers can come in and change your overall revenue perspective really fast. You know, it's much at that point if you have a good value proposition, good marketing, good sales team, you can acquire customers that really change your top line quickly. And that means you have to be able to provide the actual service level that you've committed to. And you have to change that side quickly as well. And I think that's what you're alluding to is that's really, that can be a really difficult situation to be in is great marketing and sales are doing awesome. Now what? You know, like, yeah, I mean, like specific to that is exactly what I'm kind of trying to pry open to. Like, 
it'd be great if you're open to sharing a little bit about some of those yeah. years earlier on where you're learning how to manage that cadence of growth on the top line and actually being able to maintain the SLAs that you're committing and is ultimately what is appealing to those customers coming in the door. Like, did you have points during your growth trajectory where taking on new business might have not been able to have been supported? Maybe, maybe you said, hey, we're not going to bring on new business for a period of time because we need to get more capacity. Like, did you face those kind of challenges earlier well, on in the growth? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I mean, to this day, that continues to be the biggest guessing game, but now forecasting game. And, and you know, there's a lot of financial analytics behind that. In the olden days, not nearly as much. And not by the olden days, I mean, five or six years ago. I mean, up till the pandemic. You're aging so, yourself with the old days statement. Right, right. I mean, <laughs> sorry, at the beginning, when, when we didn't have anybody else on staff to help me with those things, That's it truly became a guessing game. But the really nice thing is about, and this is why I'm such a big proponent of digital, among other reasons, but this is a huge one, which is everything's scalable. The pieces fit together very nicely. And for the most part, a lot of your building blocks are built to stock. So in a normal circumstance, we're not talking about a post-pandemic environment, but a normal circumstance, you're able to secure more production assets relatively quickly, let's say within a year. And so that really frees you to be able to ensure that you have the volume necessary to expand. As we've gotten bigger, those problems have become a lot more complex because now you're talking about whole press rooms as opposed to a press here, a press there. You have to have the space, the electrical infrastructure, you know, the staff to support it, all the rest. And we've always been extremely conservative as a company in terms of not overcommitting and keeping our um, fixed assets as productive as possible. Reason being, I mean, if you have productive assets, you're generating more cash. If you're generating more cash, you can buy more fixed assets if you need them. Versus, you know, the converse, which is building ahead. You have a lot of debt that can potentially be dragging you down. And it in the long term, it can limit your ability to grow. So our philosophy has always been get the most out of these presses we possibly can. And then when it's absolutely necessary, plug another one in. I think the pandemic was a wake-up call because we saw our demand spike so much in that year. You know, our our volume was up 70%. As a decently sized company, that was so hard. And you know, you're you're trying to staff. I we're not even going to get into the staffing issues developed by the pandemic. There's a million people who want to talk about that, but we all know it was a difficult time. And you know, you're you're talking about you need probably three lines at once or four lines at once of you know, for printing presses, also for finishing lines, if you're in the digital environment, we we separate those two things. So yeah, that's like, okay, never again, like we're going to make sure we always have a certain amount of excess capacity. And that's where we are now is trying to keep, you know, I'd say 10 to 15% available at all times, even for your spiking periods of, you know, you're, you're having your heavy weeks. So, you know, we look at everything almost on a weekly basis. So it, if like on a max volume week, we want to never really see that getting above 85% of total capacity. Cause that's, those are the scary problems for us of what if sales growth does continue two more quarters, we're going to be out of luck, but always keeping the lead time for us. I mean, that's, it's just so critical to our marketing and, and who we are as a company that like, it's just about really spending the money. If we see that we're climbing to that, because we know we have to keep that lead time. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, I can, but I don't want to, <laughs> uh, that aspect of, you know, coming in as a fairly mature business. I mean, you know, and that's a relative term, but it's not like you're a few million at the, in 2019. I, I gather you're much bigger business than that, and you're growing 70% year over year. So the complexity of installing 
70% year over year is easy at the earlier stages of building the business where it's incremental, you know, a couple million dollars of growth, let's say year over year. It's a different story when it's like seven, 10, whatever it might be. Yeah. A lot of challenges. So in terms of like, how did that play out with the service aspect and then bringing more, more iron and putting it in the ground? You know, what resulted from that period aside from your outlook on how you manage capacity, but more so assets wise, you know, what kind of new machinery did you guys acquire during that period of time? If you're comfortable sharing. Yeah. 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 yeah, Yeah. Uh, You know, we're, we're kind of an indigo shop. We always have been, we love the technology. And I think, you know, like many of, like many of us at label expo, Last month, we got to see the V12, you know, kind of the next level. But for us, larger and larger orders were happening. You know, we have to be able to drive the pricing that our customers are expecting. So through the kind of through the pandemic in in 2020, we installed our first uh, Indigo 20,000. And then shortly thereafter, we also installed a second, a 25K, but roughly the, you know, same kind of 30 inch engine. And interestingly, because I don't think it's super typical, though I know it's done. You know, we're converting a lot of pressure sensitive labels on 30 inch of slitting down and then, and then, you know, basically finishing those at 13 inch. And it's uh, for us, it's been a really great way to drive competitive costs at larger volumes for our customers. We love the output that we see and we love the color consistency. So that's been a really successful new platform for us and tool in the toolbox that, and it's alleviated a lot of the volume those big jobs are putting on our 13 inch presses, which are our six thousands. And then we have a fleet of. You know, I think you know seven or so six thousands that can handle wine socks and mid to mid to large jobs. You sometimes are running, you know, the same job simultaneously on multiple thirteen inch presses. So you have to be pretty creative. I mean, if you're going to match those kind of turns, and you have to have a lot of automation uh, developed around the the scheduling process, the how you're building your jobs out, all that, which our partners are great about working with us on, and we invest a lot of our time and money in. But basically, coming out of the pandemic, as we added a, we added a set of twenty thousands, which really helped our overall plant capacity. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, at this point, like we had, I think maybe 70 employees or so going into the pandemic, you know, in that first year of from March, 2020 to March, 2021, we had an additional 50 employees. So that we nearly doubled the amount of people working here in one year. And that was, and that's really tough. I would not recommend for, it's not fun. Yeah. (laughs) You have new people training new people. You know, it's not great for quality. It's not great for sometimes not even for morale because you just, it's just so many people who really haven't been in the industry loving where we are, you know, in 2022, it's like a, we're all getting caught back up. You know, you've, you've got people who really are, have now developed a lot of expertise in their areas and just in general, it's, it's a great feeling. So I, I don't know who, if you can do the pandemic again, I hope we don't. You know, but it's like, what would we have done differently? I don't, you know, so many of those situations were so novel, you know, that you were in Mm -hmm. and everything is like at every aspect from a public health standpoint, from an economic standpoint, from a business standpoint, you're kind of just a lot of time you were just reacting to like what was happening at that time. But only in hindsight, are you like, oh, I can kind of see the bigger picture of, of what that was. And I think for a lot of people, you know, in 2021, there's a ton of volume of people catching their inventories back up factories firing back up, needing to, to resupply. And now we're seeing a little bit in 2022, we're seeing a little bit of a drop off. And it's kind of a little bit interesting to what will happen in 2023. But we can talk about that later. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like the thoughts that are kind of going through my mind as you're sharing your journey is, you know, 
as a country, we go into a shelter in place. As a business, you kind of go into a shelter in place, right? In the sense That's that, right. hey, we're going to put our head down. We're going to figure out how to grind it out and get through these times. There's a lot of uncertainty. You go back to March, April, May, June, a lot of uncertainty in terms of what was going to happen within the overall business environment. I don't think most of us expected to go through an explosive growth here in 2020 when it comes to the packaging industry per se. Sure, you could look at the challenges with offshoring and getting materials and that putting a dependency, but I didn't think that in March of 2020 that you know we were going to see the domestic manufacturing platform just boom the way that it did. Yeah. But like, kind of fast forward, you're, you get your head down for two years, you're growing, you look back and like, holy crap, that was a shit ton of growth that yes. we just amassed. We moved mountains, you know, because it was simply just you, you're in the zone, the blinders are on, but then you kind of come up and we're like, okay, it's time to take a breath of, of air. We can start to get back to doing a little bit of strategic planning because we've moved past this period. But the amount of growth and force growth that took place, it's pretty significant in terms of just how you're, what you're describing, how your business has evolved. I mean, Indigo is coming in during that period, uh, 20K series press is coming in during that period of time. I imagine from a costing perspective, really the big change there is probably throughput, how much material you can get out on an hourly basis, I would assume. Absolutely. That, yeah, absolutely. And that opens you up to kind of serving that bigger buyer. Yeah, 100%. And then obviously, as, as you know, anybody in the packaging industry to get bigger, you know, it's about being able to drive the raw materials prices that you need to, to stay competitive as well. So, I mean, and I think that has always been a problem in our industry is making sure you can, you know, you're achieving the best prices possible. That's usually, you know, a factor of which is always going to be the scale of your company, and I think much more so now than ever with the price increases and and you know allocation everything else is you really have to do a lot of work and automation and efficiency to offset the scale of some of you know of some people in our space, and so that and and obviously keeping lead time so your throughput always has to be what it is. As everybody knows, you know, if you're going to really max out your throughput and your turn times, sometimes it's going to come at an expense. And that, that means you can't necessarily push the same costing. So for us, that's always meant if we're going to do this, you know, and keep getting bigger, that we have to really focus on automation and efficiency on the back end because we have a lot to offset. We, you know, we're doing things digitally. We are a smaller company, you know, than a lot of people. And we also are always trying to keep this focus on lead times, which it does mean a lot of overtime. So you are going to have more expensive, you know, labor going on. It means you got to have great people you can trust. So you're, you know, you're really trying to keep your wages top of the line for your team, but you still have to fall in line with where the prices can be. So where does that come from? The answer is ultimately is automation. I mean, especially in the front end is trying to touch a job as few times as possible. I mean, it's key and have everything come out to the press exactly as it needs to be printed. Very little manipulation once things are actually ready to be produced. But yeah, I mean... It's a tough dance, put it that way. Yeah, I mean, you know, automation, love to talk a little bit about that. And before going down that hole, you know, I'm thinking about the, the bigger buyer and how you put these two 20K series presses in during, you know, the, the pandemic period. In your perspective, you know, what's driving that? In essence, I feel like that's almost new demand coming to the digital label platform in terms of a bigger buyer, bigger spend. How would you sum up what you're seeing happen in terms of that evolution of that label buyer who is now putting the demand on you to go out and get more efficient assets into your arsenal to serve them? What's changing 
in the marketplace or within the end customer that's driving this new demand coming into your platform? Well, that's a great way to think about it because I usually come out of the opposite way, which is the buyers are are changing a little bit. And then I think, you know, the newest generation of purchasers out there from a brand's perspective are very much agnostic about technology behind it. They like they're concerned with what the end product looks like. They're concerned with the service level, but they could, I mean, as long as it's obviously it's meeting the compliance requirements, they could really care less about how it's actually produced, you know, be it flexo, be it, be it digital, be it inkjet, whatever. As long as it, I mean, the brand colors are on, if the resolution is what it needs to be, and it's and it's checking all the boxes for compliance, it doesn't matter. And so I don't know that bigger brands are really changing their perception of what they'll accept. I think the technology is changing to be able to be competitive at, at sizes that it never was in the past. You know, I think, and, and the buyers are on the other side of it, like not to, to say that they don't care, but it's just like, they're getting an acceptable level of quality. And the, the pandemic really sped that up. Because with the additional amount of e-commerce that's happening, you know, people weren't going to stores. So the whole store shelf argument was a little bit less important. There's obviously a very important argument to be made about the interaction with the packaging, the experience the customer has. So not to say by any means that's gone out the window, but it's changed a little bit. It's less about you comparing to the guy next to you on the store shelf. And it's more about what's the best technology just to meet your demands at where they are. And I think for many, many more people, the answer is now, oh, it's a digital technology can do that for me. In fact, you know, in our marketing and how we talk about ourselves, we used to be called Blue Label Digital Printing. We switched to packaging company maybe three or four years ago because I realized that's not really, you know, and, and the marketing team, that's not really that important who we are. What is important to who we are is what we can do for our customers, not how we're doing it. And I think that you're kind of seeing that across the board is, for instance, at Label Expo, you didn't see a single conventional press setup because now digital can do so much of the heavy lifting in the industry that it's kind of used to be the digital corner. Now it's the digital industry. And some of the things, some applications are still done much more efficiently conventional. So yeah, I mean, I think it's just a whole sea change of of technology and all the ecosystem around digital technology that now makes it able to be optimized, which didn't exist, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. So in essence, the technology is enabling you to go out and really capture traditionally flexo work. Absolutely. Yeah. That crossover point has moved its way up further in terms of lineal footage or impressions. And the 20K has opened up that ability for the company to do that. So then you look at the 20K versus the 8K. And I think you guys have an 8K, right? Yeah, we do. So traditionally in the market, you hear a lot of people say, I, I would rather just put two 6,000s in instead of an 8K. And I, you know, with uptime, I could, I could see that. But I think you know the, the promise on the 8K, or at least what you're sold on, is throughput. Probably more comfortable asset in terms of similar to the 6,000 in terms of web yes. width and complexity. I feel like that 20K press probably opens up a whole new window and niche within that length, that production length in comparison to the 8K. Absolutely. Because you're doing two out in essence of a 13 inch wide roll. Absolutely. And I think for anybody, I mean, to to really make that press successful, there has to be a lot of automation infrastructure around it because you are talking about multiple webs. Now you're talking about, you know, rumbling sizes that need to be, I mean, so there's a lot of technical considerations and you also have to have the tools to convert those wider webs into whatever the end product is as well. So from a fixed asset standpoint, it's an expensive 
entry. Once you're there, yeah, it's a great place to be. I think the 8,000 has a valuable place because it can, it's a great stepping stone to get there. It, mm-hmm. Like like you mentioned, you, you're economizing with the same type of inventory. I mean, you can really, from a throughput standpoint, not every job is a good fit for that press, but the jobs that do fit on it, it can really be produced efficiently and drive a better price. And I think for us, that was really the eye-opening moment of, whoa, the crossover point's actually a lot higher than we thought. And I mean, uh, yeah, that's on what, the 20. On the eight thousand, on the eight thousand. I mean, that was that's the intro to kind of wider volume or larger volume digital work, and then the twenty thousand is just a logical kind of expansion of that idea. And as we know, HP has lots of great stuff on the horizon. That being said, I mean, as do Durst, Domino. I mean, really had some incredible stuff to show at Label Expo. So there's lots of great options out there to be done digitally. If you're still trying to avoid having digital printing in your shop, it's like, it's, that's a tough argument for me of why you would, you know, I don't know the market as well as you do in terms of labels, but I would go out on a limb and say, there's probably still too many converters that don't have enough of an investment in digital at the present moment. And that's going to bring amongst challenges in the not too distant future. In my mind, you know, how, how are you reinventing yourself as the overall market continues to evolve as a critical element? I think any business needs to be thinking about, you know, we're not in a place of, you know, we can keep doing it the way we have at all, by any means. And to your point, you know, you go to Label Expo and there's not a single, you know, true conventional press on the floor. If that's not an eye opener for you, then I'm not quite sure what's going to be. Maybe it's probably a good time to talk to some of the bigger players and, uh, you know, hang up the shoes on on the wall at that point, but and, and in all fairness, you know, there's been a lot of people that have been around for a long time and, and, you know, are, are getting to that point, you know, playing in the digital game is not a low CapEx investment. It, you really got to no, have. It, it, and I mean, yeah, that's such a great, that's such a great point about digital because, you know, the barrier to entry at the beginning is lower and that's a great way to, I mean, it's a much more efficient way to dip your toe in the water of a new, you know, product offering or, but like you said, as you get higher and higher to those run lengths and you get up to that flexo, you know, press productivity, the fixed asset cost is all, is not that different. And sometimes it's obviously much greater than what it would have been on the flexo things. It just lets you do different things in terms of throughput service delivery. Yeah. That's a great point that, that does get missed is a lot of times they do the best of both worlds, which is it's cheaper to get into and it's more efficient. It's like, no, not really. It's cheaper to get into when you're beginning, but as you build up your product offerings in the digital world, you know, you have a lot invested in your CapEx and your infrastructure as well, for sure. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, kind of we're, we're in the weeds right now. I'm enjoying this conversation very much and I feel like we're just getting started, but I want to go back to 6K, 8K, 20K, 25K currently in the shop. Then you see the V12 at Label Expo. It, you know, what's what's neat is how these different pieces of hardware, you know, really are complementary to one another. And they're complementary to one another really on a macro level. I think your business model really ends up becoming, and I'm saying this more as like a an overall view, like the business model is what ultimately is going to demand which piece of hardware. What's neat when you when I think about Blue and what you and the team have built is um, you've got that complementary tech offering in the facility today. You serve a wide range of buyers, you, and obviously each piece of each asset is built to serve a different size ICP and everything else or run length. Where do you see this V12 coming into the mix? And you know I'm, we're still early; it needs to be proven out in the market. I think we'll start yeah. to see that happen in the next six to twelve months. But when you think about your business. What kind of value do you think the V12 could bring to a business like yours? 
Absolutely. Uh, so even though we don't, you know, we're still some time away from its commercial release, we do know a little bit about, you know, its rough parameters, rough idea of the expense, rough idea of... So you can essentially put together what a machine rate might look like and what a hourly production might look like. And based on our understanding of similar presses, you know, in that family, you could you could start to mock up what your PM schedule would have to look like, et cetera. So you could build a mock-up press in your estimating system and start to look at what the crossover points are. And from what we've seen, I mean, it's significantly higher crossover point that allows you to run some really, I mean, things that were pretty much like, this is going to be conventional for a long time. Well, now maybe next year, it's not like, so a limited color, you know, long run specialty foods or food products job, the economics had to even start to change, even if the printing is pretty straightforward and there's not a lot of four color detail or, um, you know, skew changes, you can see you know, what, what might've been, let's just say for the sake of discussion, you know, crossover point, it's tough. Cause I would do feeder a number. Let's just say a few hundred thousand of something is usually on the upper echelons of where you are under a million labels of just some, you know, beverage size is usually where your cutoff is going to be with the conventional press. It pretty much takes that number up to two to 3 million where you're still pretty, you're still extremely competitive and you're also able to provide it a lot faster in terms of there's no plate making. There's no, it, it can be pretty much sent right out to press as you go. I think what'll be really awesome to watch is how the converting OEM manufacturer, you know, OEM manufacturers accommodate those higher speeds and what new tools come out from AB graphic, from Graphtronics, you know, from Cartes, what you start to see of how they can really align their productivity offerings with the V12, because it's going to, it's going to change the game. Now, like anybody, you, we do have to be realistic of any new platform and digital technology, especially one that's doing as many revolutionary things. The ramp up to when that it's, you know, it's at the OEE they really want, it might take it, you know, a little bit longer than expected. But I think even with that, it's like, it's coming a lot sooner than people think. And really within the scope of, I think the next two years, you'll see a lot of things that were traditionally done flex or conventional are going to be done digitally. Yeah, I think the finishing side, you know, the press really kind of flips the model upside down in the sense that, you know, finishing has gotten to the point that it can keep up with some of the smaller assets in the market, like the 6,000 series, but you get to a V12, the amount of uh, finishing assets you need to, to keep up with that press, it feels like are quite a, are going to be quite a bit more until, as you said, the technology gets to a similar throughput rate, which I think it's going to be a little while before we see finishing get to the throughput rate the V12 gets to. It's going to be a little while before we see the V12 capable doing what it says it can do. But I also believe we're in a world where we'll see finishing get there and we'll also see digital push to the next milestone when it comes to the press. Well, it, it, I mean, it just as an exercise, you know, for somebody with a flexible packaging background, you know, theoretically, that same technology is transferable to 30 inches, you know, over in, in the long run as well. So, right. you know, potentially that the, you know, extended blanket and the new way that we're kind of thinking about producing the the indigo uh, impression, yeah, that could that could tra be translating to a lot of really game-changing technology. So, it was very cool to see at Label Expo. and. Yeah. For us, that's now been our limiting factor in terms of job size, which is there's just a physical reality of we, we're going to hit a max, especially on single skew jobs. And it'll be cool to see that number go way up where that crossover point really adjusts to. 
I agree. I'm excited to just kind of see it play out in real time. It was awesome to see it in person. Obviously, a lot of chatter about it over the years. So getting to see it in front of our eyes is pretty cool. Hey, I know we're getting ready to wrap up. So I want to throw one last question at you here. I appreciate you making the time to, to chat, man. It's been fun. Fast forward to 2025. What does a digital label printing company look like in 2025 as a, a market leading business? You know, how does that business operate? Just take us real quick from beginning of the journey to the product arriving to the customer. What's your view on that? Yeah, uh, and I have a lot of views on this. So very, very minimal human interaction with that order. You, I think you're likely going to see you know roughly continuous production on both your print engine and your finishing line. Now, whether it's conveyed via you know robotics or it's or it's actually done in line, probably depends on the application. And all the way through to a very, very integrated packing system. You know, everything is RFID chipped, everything is going into its box. The customer knows exactly where their inventory is until it shows up on their dock. So basically, I think the future for printing is not hands touching jobs anymore. You know, all done. You know, lots of great automation and setup, making sure when we're when jobs are being put together that there's time for human intervention and adjustment at that point. But once things are good to go and it's released. Totally seamless through the facility is my hope for us. And I think that, that you'll start seeing that a lot of software and ERP providers are really narrowing in on the same goals. I love it. I'm right there with you. I look forward to coming down to blue in 2025 and seeing that vision happening uh, firsthand because I have all the confidence in the world that you and the team are going to head down that direction. Thanks for jumping on with us today, man. It was a true pleasure. Absolutely. And you're welcome out before 2025 too. So. Hey everyone, it's Dustin. Thanks so much for listening to the show and being at the front lines of this new exciting era in digital packaging. Make sure you hit subscribe, leave a five-star review and a written review to tell us what you think. Thanks for listening and see you again next time. Oh,